Well, it is good to be back uh, here. So many memories flood our minds, even as we drove in last night. Uh, what you guys have impacted our lives, how you've impacted our lives. It, it, it is ever ongoing. Uh, as Matt talked about the age of popular spring, I was here when we celebrated the 225th, two weeks from today. And Mount Hermon will be celebrating the 175th anniversary of our church in Danville. And it will look a lot like the 225th here at Poplar Spring. I said, it's the only way I know how to do it. And so if it flops totally, you're at fault. Uh, we're blaming it on Poplar Spring. If it goes well, I'll give you credit. But uh, uh, this church has impacted my life in so many ways. Uh, it is still the longest place I've ever lived in my entire life was Bun, North Carolina. And uh, you have a special place in our heart. And we are so grateful and thankful that we can come back. And uh, I'm just glad to be up here being able to preach once again in this pulpit. We're going to look at Mark chapter 5. And as I considered and prayed about what to preach, so many memories come back as I think of Harvest Day and I think of the harvest. The harvest is always a joyful time. I remember growing up in uh, the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota, Illinois, and uh, planting and picking rocks and all that stuff is just, everybody's cranky and nobody wants to do it. It's long, hard days, and there's not a whole lot to show for it. But when the harvest comes... Man, everybody's happy, right? When the hay mow is getting full or the silos are getting full, there's just a joy about it. And as we consider the harvest day, I want to point us to the need for the harvest. Just about a year ago, Stephen Wade and a couple of the interns there from Faith came up to Virginia, and we went with some church planning strategists from our association in Virginia around to look at churches throughout Virginia and the thing that I kept hearing in the communities that we would stop and look at churches that had died or were dying and had just three or four members left, the thing that continually came out as we talked to people in the community is, well, they just didn't continue to reach the community. They didn't continue to grow. They didn't continue to harvest. And now they are dead. So what is the harvest? As we consider what it is, the harvest, in the spiritual mindset of a church, what is the harvest we should be about? I want to take us to Mark chapter 5. But as we look at Mark chapter 5, I want us to think a minute about what is a great harvest? When we think spiritually about the church, what is the great harvest that we pray for and that we look forward to and that we're about? Take your Bibles and turn back one passage, because I think this is often what we think about in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Mark chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, And again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he had to get into a boat. And so we think of Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Here Jesus is, is preaching, and there's a great crowd. I mean, what could be better than Jesus preaching to this great crowd? That would be a harvest. Take your Bibles and turn over to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Very familiar passage. What happens in chapter 6, verse 30? The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. 
And what happens is huge group comes around them. And what we know is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Some estimate some 20,000 people are there hearing Jesus preach. We're like, there is the harvest. That is what we want. Man, if we want our church to be the biggest and there needs to be the most people and there needs to be this huge movement of people, there's over 5,000 men hearing Jesus preach. That's got to be the harvest. Then we go to chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. He calls his disciples to him, and they said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with us now three days and have nothing to eat. And, and you know the story. It's the feeding of the 4,000. The disciples are like, well, I don't know how we're going to feed them. And you're like, hey, dummy, go back two chapters. He fed 5,000. What Don't you think he can take care of 4,000? But we're sitting here, and here's another great crowd in front of Jesus. But this great crowd in chapter 8 is one I want to specifically focus on as we look at this passage in chapter 5. Because if you go back to chapter 7 in the context, verse 31, it says, And Jesus returns to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you were listening when Matt read, I'm sure you weren't listening for that word. But chapter 5 is happening in the region of Decapolis. So this region of Decapolis, here in chapter 7, Jesus heals this man who's deaf and had a speech impediment. And the man can't keep his mouth shut. Jesus tells him not to tell anybody. He's telling people. And then this great crowd shows up in chapter 8. But what we need to know about this Decapolis was, it was the region of 10 cities. It was across a east of the Jordan River on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It was not located in Israel. It was where the Gentiles were. And in 63 BC, Pompey had invited, invaded Palestine and established these showcase cities of the Hellenistic culture. These were showcase cities of the Gentiles. There, there was a Roman settlement there that harbored Roman soldiers. Therefore, as we're going to see in chapter 5, there was this need for all these hogs. The Jews wouldn't have had all these hogs. They were unclean. The Romans had this... Uh, this soldier, all these soldiers housed there, and so there was this need. This was the livelihood of these people that they would sell these hogs to the Roman soldiers. And so Jesus, in chapter 8, is coming to this area of Decapolis where he's going to feed the crowds, and the crowds are coming to hear this Jewish teacher. But we have to ask the question why are the crowds, the Gentile crowds, showing up for this Jewish teacher? This guy that just wanders through the countryside preaching to the Jews. And all of a sudden, here he is in Decapolis, and this huge crowd shows up. Why is there this harvest? Well, let's go back to chapter 5. I want to realize that, help us realize today, number one, that the harvest starts with one. The harvest starts with one. Look at chapter 4, verse 35. We're going to get the context here. On that day, when evening had come, now remember, we looked at chapter 4, verse 1, there was a huge crowd, he's preaching to this crowd, he preaches these parables that they don't understand, he has to explain them to the disciples, and then they, on that day, in verse 35, when evening had come, he says to them, let us go across to the other side. So they're leaving Israel, they're leaving the Jews, the, the people that they know, the people that they're comfortable with, and there's this huge crowd that Jesus is teaching Let's go across to the other side and leaving the crowd. 
wait a second, when we start talking about the harvest, this doesn't seem to make sense. Why would you leave a crowd that is listening? Why would you leave people that are engaged listening to what Jesus has to teach? Jesus says, get in the boat, and they go across to the other side, and they took with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats, there's other boats with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is on a mission heading across for this harvest in chapter 5, and I want to see a couple things about the harvest. The harvest always starts with one. You know the saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. But that's not often how we look at a harvest spiritually. Hey, we want the crowd. We want the mark 4 verse 1 crowd we need this huge crowd of thousands of people Jesus says get in the boat and we're going to a harvest I want to see a couple things about the harvest number one you have to leave your comfort zone for the harvest you have to leave your comfort zone Jesus leaves a crowd of Jewish religious people these are the people the disciples are comfortable with these are the people that the disciples are like yeah they're our people they they go to the temple they keep the feast these are our people we know their religious background we know what they believe and how they talk and their language they're not unclean they're not the people hanging out with pigs and swine over on the other side we're comfortable here and Jesus says no for this harvest to happen you got to get in the boat Folks, listen to me. If we're going to see a spiritual harvest in our nation, we have to be willing to leave our comfort zone. We have to get past this idea that those people don't fit what we look like or what we talk like or how we relate to one another. We have to get past the socioeconomic groups and the racial divides and say, you know what, if we're going to see a spiritual harvest for God, we have got to get out of our comfort zone. Jesus says, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. Number two, for the harvest to come, there's going to be spiritual battles. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. Now, if you know the history of the Sea of Galilee, there is a, a great windstorms that come off of a Mount Hermon, ironically, that come down and cause great storms. But this is, these men had been fishermen. These are professional fishermen. They, they had seen storms happen. But this isn't a storm like any other storm. So in the mind of the disciples, they're leaving the Jews... They're leaving the people that they relate to the best, that they can talk to, they feel comfortable with. They get in this boat, and they're going to go to the Gentiles, the unclean people. So they get in this boat, and they start away, and Jesus is in the stern asleep, and this storm uh, comes up that is like a storm they'd never experienced before. And so here they are going to this Gentile city, this storm, this place had idols, it had evil spirits. And we see here when Jesus wakes up, he says, peace be still. 
Now, a couple things about this statement, peace be still. One, it's in a second person singular, which means he's, he's not talking necessarily to this nature, this uh, random thing out there. It's actually like he's talking to a person when he says peace be still. And he says it in a, a, perfect, uh, a perfect passive imperative, which is a command, but it's also saying be still and stay still. He's not talking necessarily to a storm saying be still and don't come back up again. I believe what is happening here is that the demons know that if Jesus makes it to the other side, he's going to start a harvest and start taking enemy ground. This is a storm that is unlike any normal storm. Why? Because there is a spiritual warfare going on here. And Jesus says, no, be still, stay still. I'm in charge here. This isn't going to happen. So in the disciples' minds, we've left the comforts of the Jews we cut the comfort of our people, the way, talk our way, look our way, act our way. We're going across the sea, and a storm comes up like no storm we ever see on the Sea of Galilee. And let's be honest, if this were you and me, I'd have turned back. Right? What does it take for us to stop going after the harvest? Well, somebody slammed a door in my face. I'm just not going to witness to anybody anymore. Somebody told me No. Somebody doesn't like me now. I guess I'm done with that. What would it have taken for you to turn around? At this point, I'm like, dude, Peter, turn it around and head back. Jesus says, be still. There was a spiritual warfare. There was demonic power coming over that lake and trying to keep that boat from getting to the other side. And meanwhile, Jesus is asleep in the boat. Jesus is totally asleep, demonstrating, one, his humanity. The dude is tired. He's sleeping through a storm. But we also see his deity is in total trust of his father. You know, it's ironic that every time you see Jesus sleeping in the Gospels, it's in the middle of a storm. Total faith that where he's going and what he's supposed to be doing is in the hand of his father. So we see we have to leave our comfort zone. Two, we have to, we realize there are going to be spiritual battles. If you think the harvest comes and there's not tractors breaking down and there's not machinery breaking down and there's not bad days and it's too hot, it's too dry, it's too wet, the harvest always has something come up. And in the spiritual warfare of life, listen to me, there will be a battle for the spiritual harvest. Number three, we see your faith will be tested. If you are going to go after the spiritual harvest, there will be a testing of your faith. That's what Jesus says. He said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The question is, who are we trusting when we're in the spiritual battles? Jesus says, you don't, you don't trust your heavenly father? You don't trust God? You don't trust who I am? Here they are, scared and ready to turn back and Jesus do something. They're experienced fishermen, but they could not handle the warfare. Folks, that's the problem most of the time when we go into the harvest. Because we think, if I can talk well enough, if I have the gospel presentation down well enough, if I build a good enough relationship, then the harvest will just happen. And Jesus says, no, there's going to be spiritual warfare, and you must respond 
in faith. Which leads us to point number four here. You can't handle it alone. Just like the harvest, we can't control the rain, the heat, cold, the snow. You think last week those people in Montana decided, you know what, we want three feet of snow right now. <clears throat> you can't handle the, the weather. The spiritual harvest always comes in the same way. We need God. If God's not in it, it is going to fail. Acts chapter 4, I know you've been studying the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, what happens? There's a prayer. What does the early church pray? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness what did the early church know that if the harvest was going to happen God had to happen we were not going to have the boldness to walk through spiritual warfare. We were not going to ha have the boldness to walk through demon oppression and the things that would go on when we were trying to take enemy ground for God. And so they got together and said, God, we need boldness. I'm sure as you studied the book of Acts, you looked at it and said, man, I long for the day the spirit moves like he did in Acts. Anybody ever said that? How many of us said, man, I long for the prayer meetings they had in the book of Acts? We want the harvest. We just don't have to want to have to work for it. We don't have to want to have to trust for it. We don't have to want to rely on God for it. And what we see here in Mark chapter 4 is we cannot go alone. We need God. We need Christ in the boat. But secondly, I want to show you the harvest isn't what it seems. So you would think that when we get to the other side of the shore, we've had this terrible storm come up, that, man, people just be running out, right? Hey, everybody wants to get saved. This is, this is wonderful. We've gone through the storm. I want you to see that the harvest isn't always what it seems. What happens? Jesus gets to the shore. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately, Jesus hasn't gotten off the beach. Jesus didn't get halfway to town. He gets out of the boat, and immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, again, put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. You're going to unclean people anyways, Right? Up on this hillside, there are thousands of pigs. That's unclean too. Now you got a crazy man running out of the tombs, which are unclean, who's a Gentile, which is unclean. He doesn't fit the profile of anybody we want in our church. Right? They're like, dude, this place is crazy. Jesus steps out of the boat, and this dude comes running and screaming. What kind of dude? You missed my, uh, my, my language, right? This is biblical language. This dude comes running. I know you missed that. He comes running with an unclean spirit. He lives among the tomb, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with the stones. Dude, check this guy out. 
You step out of the boat. Jesus steps out, and this guy comes running who has these marks of the chains that he's ripped apart. He's been cutting himself. He's unkept. He's screaming. He's madness. Nobody, in fact, the Bible says nobody would even go near the tombs. He comes running towards Jesus. Man, if I'm the disciples, I'm in the boat. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm a rowing. It's time to go leave Jesus. That man can walk on water. I am out of here. Right? It's time to go. You just came through the storm. What are we doing here? Jesus steps out, and this dude comes running and screaming at Jesus. What would your reaction have been? Everything says it is time to go. Why? Because Satan desires to destroy the image of God and man, and this man was acting like a complete animal. They couldn't even chain him up. He couldn't even come into town. He stayed out in the tombs. Everything about this place says run. The storm on the way over, the Gentile man among the tombs, the demon possession, the land with 2,000 pigs. Peter's either in the or in the boat with the oars paddling or he's ready to knock this guy out. One of the things is going down. This is not the mission trip we had in mind. And what happens? He sees Jesus from afar, verse 6, and he runs and falls down before him, crying out with a loud voice, says, what, do you have, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? He runs and falls down before him, prostrate, submission, showing reverence and worship. What is going on? Who's this Jesus? They just asked the question in verse 41. They were filled with fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And all of a sudden, this demon-possessed man comes running out, and they're like, man, this is going down right here. Right? Are we, is this the end? Are we all going to die? And the man runs up to Jesus, and he falls down, submitting himself in, a, in an attitude of worship before Jesus. Look what it says. What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? The demons even come and show him reverence. It's, the irony is great here. Verse 9, Jesus says, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the far country. Verse 12, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So, verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. James Edwards says this in his commentary, when demons meet the divine, there is no contest. Everything that the disciples were fearing, the storm, Jesus stood up and said, stop. Be still, stay still. Here comes this crazy man filled with demons, a legion of demons, thousands of them, comes running. They bow down, say, oh, son of the most high God, please send us into these pigs. And they begged him, and Jesus said, you know what? I will give you permission. Folks, what is it that we fear most in spiritual warfare? Well, Steve, I mean, there, there's this spiritual battle going on. Who do you have on your side? What are you fearing? Well, this dude is demon-possessed. 
Man has done everything in his power. They have chained him. They have shackled him. They've cast him out of town. Nobody can control him. They've done everything to the best of their ability. And Jesus shows up. And guess what? The demons are worshiping. They're begging him. And he's giving permission. Folks, listen to me. I don't know what's going on in your life. And the sins that may have a hold on you. And the sins that you struggle with. But listen to me. Jesus, with the very words, takes care of them all. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? I've gone to every doctor. I've spent my life savings. Jesus says, you've come to the right place. Just one touch healed her. Folks, the reason we don't see a harvest is because we think that we can do the harvest on our own. And if the disciples would have been doing it on their own. They would have turned the boat around in the storm. And if not when the storm, they'd have turned it around when they got to shore and that man showed up. And Jesus is showing us, listen, if there is going to be a spiritual harvest, Jesus has to be involved. He is the one that brings the harvest. We are to act out in faith and obedience. The problem and the reason that we do not see a harvest is because we want the harvest and we want to handle it ourselves. James chapter 2 even says the demons believe and they shudder. That's the Jesus we serve. And that's what the disciples are learning about. Jesus has left the crowd to come and talk to one man. Jesus is still on the shore. This man comes running and lays down and falls down prostrate in front of him. And these demons beg him to send them away. So what does he do? He gives them permission, verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs in the herd. Numbering about 2,000, they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. What's the cost of the harvest? You realize that Jesus was more concerned about this one demon-possessed man that everybody had kicked out of town than he was the livelihood of the town, the economics of the town. Yeah, but this is, this is our livelihood. This is, this is what we sell to these Roman soldiers. Jesus said, no, go into the pigs. They run off into the sea and they drown. Why? Because this man's life was more important than the economic livelihood of the city. Folks, what are we willing to give up for the harvest? What do we say, oh, I just don't have time, or it's going to cost me too much money, or it's going to cost me too much effort? Jesus here sends the demons into the pigs. They run in the sea and drown. And what happens? The herdsmen, verse 14, run back into town, and they tell the town. They told it the city and in the country, and people came out to see what happened. And they come to Jesus and see the demon-possessed man, the one with had a legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So we don't know how much time has passed, but it's going to take a little bit of time for the herdsmen to run into the city, to run into the country, and tell everybody, and get a mob together to show up at this boat. And they show up, and what has happened? They come out, and this man has gone from an animal to being a, back to being an image-bearer of God. He's clothed. And he's in his right mind. Folks, listen, when people meet Jesus, the change will be immediate. God changed not just the inside, he changed the outside. This man was different. 
And we can go through the people in the, the Bible, the woman at the well, the adulterous woman, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Saul, a persecutor of Christians, Peter, James, John. They meet Jesus and they are changed. Listen to me. The harvest doesn't happen if we don't point people to Jesus. The harvest doesn't happen because we point people to our church or to our pastor or to our Sunday school teacher. Listen, the harvest only happens when people get Jesus. But I also want to tell you the harvest isn't celebrated by everybody. The lost world comes out. These town people, the Gentiles, they respond with fear and they come out. They see this man clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described what had happened to the demons with this man and the pigs, and they begged Jesus to depart from their region. Listen to me carefully. If the start, harvest starts to happen and lives start being changed, there will be people that will not be happy about it. And don't be surprised if it's not people inside the church as well as outside the church. Jesus heals a man that this city had been battling. They've been chaining him up. They can't even go near these tombs. He's been in shackles, and Jesus changes them. And you would think, "Woo, man, praise the Lord, we don't have to deal with that anymore. Praise the Lord, this man's been healed. Praise the Lord, this man can go back to his family. Praise the Lord, this man, this, the, his mom and his dad can joyfully re- receive him back. And they come back and they say, get in the boat and leave. Folks, we often fail to continue going after people and teach, telling them about Jesus. We, can, we fail to continue to go into the harvest because somebody gets upset about it. Listen to me. When Jesus starts to move in, there will be people that are upset about it. There will be people that are upset somebody took their pew in the church. There will be people upset that all of a sudden the dynamics of the church are changing or their Sunday school class doesn't look the same. There will be people that will be upset. And that's what happens. They come out and they say, Jesus, they beg Jesus, get back in. It's the same word that the demons were begging him. They're like, get in the boat. They respond out of fear. Lastly, I want to look. The harvest was a perceived failure. It was a perceived failure. Look at what happens. They begin to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting in the boat, listen, they have left a crowd. Just don't forget this. Chapter 4, they have left a crowd that Jesus was preaching to and that were listening. Man, whatever we're going to do, this has got to be big. Whatever Jesus is up to, to leave a great crowd that is sitting there listening to him preach this sermon, to go in a boat and to cross through a storm, a violent storm, to get to the other side, something big has got to happen. They get out, this crazy man comes running down, and he falls down, and Jesus heals him, sends the demons out, and here he is having this discussion with Jesus, and he's clothed and in his right mind, and the townspeople come out and say, get back in your boat and get gone. Jesus hasn't gotten 20 yards offshore. Jesus, we, we went through that for this? I mean, can you imagine their social media account? Hashtag worst missions trip ever. Absolute failure. We should have stayed on that side. I mean, Jesus 
You've hit on a lot of good mission trips. This one failed. And they're pushing off ashore, and they hear a voice. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with them. Hit the brakes on the boat. Drop the anchor. That Jesus, there's a dude here. He wants to go with us. And you, again, put yourselves in the mind of the disciples. This has been a horrible missions trip. The best thing we could do is at least let the one dude that we've had interaction with, that Jesus cast the demons out, is in his right mind. At least he can come with us. When we get back to the other side, we can say, we at least got one, right? And nobody likes him. The, the whole city's trying to run us off. Nobody wants this guy. Jesus, there's room in the boat. Let him in. The man is pleading, please, Jesus, I want to go with you. Please, I want to go with you. Let me in the boat. Let me in the boat. And if you're the disciples, you'd say, got room, Jesus, Right? Verse 19, and he did not permit him. Jesus did not permit him. Jesus, why would you not let the man in the boat? Why would you not let the man in the boat? What does Jesus say? But he says to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, and he went away. Go home to your friends. Jesus, friends? The man's been being chained up in the tombs. I mean, who's, uh, how many friends does he really have? Right? He's been blocked on all the Facebook accounts. Nobody wants to hang out with him. Nobody's admitting that. Jesus says, no, no, go home. The, the, the word friends there is your people. Go back to your people and tell them what the Lord, Kurios, master, has done for you. But Jesus, why? I mean, the disciples, again, we have absolutely no fruit of this trip. You put our life on the line to heal this crazy guy, to send back to town? I mean, Jesus, he needs to come over and find out about the way we believe and the way we live. And he needs to learn the Old Testament. Jesus, bring him in the boat. Jesus says, no, go and tell your people what the Lord has done for you. Why in the world would Jesus do that? And he began to, compl- uh, to proclaim, verse 20, he began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Where did we hear that word? We heard it in Mark chapter 8. When Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he gets over there and 4,000 people show up. Where did those 4,000 people come from? Do you know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew that a demon-possessed man that is willing to go tell people about this man that changed his life would be more profitable and more successful in the harvest than some itinerant preacher from over in Israel. Listen to me. Jesus left a crowd to get in a boat to go find one dude to heal him from his demon possession and say, hey, I got a job for you. Go tell him how God changed your life. Folks, you know why I think we have failed so miserably at the harvest as a church? 
Because as in the American church, we have been so convinced that we can get the pastor to do it or a Sunday school teacher to do it. And if we can just get you to church, then the church will take care of it. Rather than what Jesus is telling this man, listen, you're not getting in the boat. Well, Jesus, I need to go to college. I need to go to seminary. I need to learn this. I need to learn that. Jesus said, no, no. What you need to do is go tell them what the Lord did in your life. Tell them about Jesus. And he goes and tells them about Jesus. And a couple chapters over in chapter 8, Jesus shows up and over 4,000 people are waiting on him. Why? Because Jesus knew the harvest was for one. Folks, too often we are waiting for this. We want thousands. We need thousands. We need a day when we're setting a tent up there and there are thousands coming and Jesus saying, maybe there's one in your neighborhood. You say, dude, you haven't met my neighbors. They need Jesus. But that's going to take a miracle. Jesus says, great, that's who I've come for. Yeah, but Jesus, Jesus that, that, that person over here that looks like us, talks like us, has the nice house like us, he would be more fitting. He'll reach more people. Jesus says, don't you tell me who I can use. You tell them about Jesus. Can you imagine this man? You imagine sitting down with a crowd and this man says, let me tell you about my master, my Lord Let me tell you how I was bound by chains and the demons in me. I was strong enough. I'd break the chains. They couldn't tie me down. And guess what? I met this guy, Jesus. And when I met this guy, Jesus, he changed me. And all of a sudden from the back, you hear another man speak up and says, let me tell you about my story. I was blind had no hope, couldn't see. I begged by the side of the road. And Jesus, this Jesus guy, he showed up. And he, in the middle of this crowd, spit on the ground and put it on my eyes. And I was healed. I could see. I went to the temple and they said, you know what? This man has to be a sinner. He says, I'll tell you one thing. Sinner or not, all I know is when I met Jesus, once I was blind, now I see. And Jesus came and found me. And he saved me. And he changed me. And all of a sudden in the back, a woman speaks up and says, listen, my city didn't want me. The women wouldn't even let me come out to the well with them. I'd go out in the middle of the day because they didn't care if I was robbed, I was beaten, I was killed. Nobody cared about me. And all of a sudden, this Jewish itinerant preacher, one day I go to the well, and he sits down, he starts talking to me. His disciples don't even know why he's talking to me. But Jesus was interested in one, and he went and talked to this one woman, and all of a sudden, her eyes spiritually were open. And what happens? She goes back into a town that he wouldn't have won on his own, and he, she goes and says, you've got to meet this Jesus. And the whole town comes out. Why? Because Jesus was worried about one. All of a sudden, another lady speaks up and says, listen, I was about to die. I'd been committed. I had committed adultery. I'd been caught in it. They bring bring Jesus to me. They got their rocks. They're ready to stone me. And Jesus says, let he he who is without sin cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, everybody departed. And Jesus looked at me and said, go and sin no more. Why? Because Jesus in that moment was worried about one woman. And all of a sudden, hey, listen. A man from the back says, I'm, I know you can't see me. I'm too short. But there was a crowd around Jesus, and I couldn't get to Jesus. 
So I climbed up in a tree just hoping I could see Jesus. And Jesus was walking past that tree in the middle of a crowd, a whole group of people he could have cared about. I was a tax collector. Everybody hated me. I was an outcast. And Jesus stopped in the middle of this crowd to look up and talk to me and say, I'm going to your house. My name's Zacchaeus. And let me tell you something. When I met Jesus, money was no longer my idol. I was giving it away. I didn't need it anymore because I met Jesus. Man stands up and says, you know what? It's amazing I can stand here because I was sitting by a pool one day with no hope of getting in first. There was a crowd there and Jesus walked into the crowd. Why he picked me, I'll never know. But Jesus spoke to me and he said, take up your bed and walk. And he changed my life. Why? Because I met Jesus and he healed me and he forgave my sin. And the woman from Luke 8 says, no, no, I snuck through a crowd. And in the middle of a crowd, I just hoped to touch the hem of his garment. And he healed my issue of blood. And I was changed. And he stopped in the middle of a crowd to look at one. Man says, yeah, you... No, my story is completely different. While you were the outcasts and the reprobates, I was the religious elite. The priest had given me the okay to go around, and I killed Christians. It's what I did for a living. I was the righteous of the righteous. My name is Saul. I was in a crowd traveling down the Damascus Road, and Jesus decided today's the day. And he reached down, and he came down, and he met me, and he changed me forever. He changed my name. He changed my occupation. And now I would say, swinner of souls. I told people about Jesus. Another man said, yeah, I was with you, Saul. I was sneaking around in John chapter 3 at night, religious elite. And Jesus said, no, you need to be born again. And he changed me. Philip says, listen, I was a preacher and I had a crowd around me. I was having me a revival in the book of Acts. And Jesus said, no, there's one guy out here going to Ethiopia that you need to go see. Leave the crowd and go find the one. And that Ethiopian eunuch was absolutely changed. So here's my question. What's your story? Folks, you will never see a harvest until, one, you have the story of when God found you. Jesus says, go back and tell them how your Lord, your master, has changed you. I'm afraid that many times in our churches we don't have a harvest because too many people are in the church that haven't found Jesus. I don't have that experience. He's not their Lord. He's not their master. They're controlled by other things, and they're going after other things, and they're trying to find other things that will satisfy their life, and they will not find fulfillment because they've never found Jesus. And maybe today Jesus is saying, yes, your day. But maybe you're sitting here, and you remember like I do, I was in elementary chapel sitting on the end over on the left the day Jesus said, Steve, today's your day. And Jesus came down and he, he saved me and he changed me. Folks, listen to me. You would not be saved and I would not be saved if Jesus hadn't come for one. It's one But then Jesus is saying, listen, don't go get in the boat and don't go hide over on the Israel side. No, go and tell those closest to you. It's amazing to me how we as a church 
so often, man, I'll go on a mission trip and I'll go to Haiti or I'll go to Uganda or I'll go somewhere else and share the gospel. No, go talk to your coworker, talk to your neighbor, talk to your family member. Oh, I can't do that. I'm afraid. Jesus says, yeah, you're afraid because you think you're going to do it. Let Jesus show up. Tell them about Jesus. Give them Jesus and watch what he'll do. So here's my question for you today. What's your part in this story of the harvest? Maybe you're like the demon-possessed man. Sin and Satan have you wrapped up. You've tried everything. Every way to control your life. Every way to find satisfaction. Every way to overcome the sin that has got you. Maybe you're sitting here today and say, you know what? I just need Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today, you're the disciples. You say, yeah, I'm I'm following Jesus, but man, I'm just scared. I don't understand what he's doing in my life. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know exactly why all this is happening. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Trust me. Cry out to me. I'll give you the boldness. I'll give you the courage to get into the harvest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. You will find rest. And folks, maybe you're like the townspeople. Yeah, it's good that some people get changed. But you know what? That needs to happen somewhere else. I don't want it affecting my life and my comfort. I don't have time for that. Maybe you're here today. You say, man, I I just want to follow Christ's example. My question is, who are you going after? Jesus left the side of the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, knowing that it'd be for one man. Never got into town. Never got off the shore. But folks, listen to me. I end with this. You never know what that person that you lead to Jesus can do for the kingdom. Isn't it amazing that the one guy that everybody would have said, dude, Jesus doesn't want him. That in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus shows up, 4,000 people come out. You know why? Because this crazy man got changed by Jesus. Why is it that we so often in life think, no, no, they wouldn't make a good believer. Or, I don't know, man, they aren't going to listen to the gospel. I don't know. Look at their house. Look at how they live. Look at their party life. Look at, look at, look at, look at. And we make all these excuses. Why not to share the gospel? When Jesus saying, man, listen, share Jesus with him. And when he gets saved, thousands will come to Christ. Your neighbor might be the next Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon. You don't know what Jesus could do with them. You say, man, I'm not that guy. Jesus is just asking you to go after one. You may be here and Jesus never has a plan for your life to preach to thousands. But he may have you be that one that will lead someone to the Lord that thousands would come to Jesus through. Folks, are we involved in the harvest? When we celebrate a day like Harvest Day, it renews our excitement as we think about the harvest. Listen to me. Every day could be Harvest Day. Every day could be Harvest Day. 
The problem is we don't plant and we don't water and expect somehow harvest to show up. Spiritually. Folks, if we aren't praying and we aren't sharing the gospel and we're not going after people, how in the world do we ever expect the harvest to come? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Does anybody here this morning say, you know what, Steve? I realize today I'm that guy. I'm like the demon-possessed man. I've tried everything. Maybe you're sitting here today, you say, you know what, but sin has a grip on me. And I've tried everything to find help and to find satisfaction. And Steve, I realize this morning, I need Jesus. Anybody like that today, just raise your hand, put it up, put it down. Steve, pray for me. I need Jesus. I need to be saved. Then is anybody here today that say, you know what, Steve, as you preached this morning, I realized I'm not a part of the harvest. Whether it's fear like the disciples, whether it's been spiritual warfare, you, you would say, you know what, Steve, I realize I, I need to trust God to give me boldness to get involved in the harvest. I'm not sharing the gospel. I'm not planting. I'm not watering. I'm not telling people how Jesus changed me. And Steve, God's convicted me today. Maybe God's even brought somebody to your mind. You say, you know what? I need to share the gospel with them. I need to tell them about Jesus. Anybody like that today say, Steve, would you pray for me? I need to be involved in the harvest. I need a boldness. I need to be involved in reaching people with the gospel. And God's convicted me today. Steve, would you pray for me? Anybody like that? Put your hand up. Put it right back down. Steve, pray for me. God, you've seen the hands this morning as we come to this invitation time. God, I pray for those that raised their hand. God, would you give them a boldness and a courage and a focus on the lost. God, help us not to get caught up by the storms that are going on around us and the the problems and the, the, the judgments we jump to when we see people. God, for those that raise their hand, God, I pray that even today you would give them the opportunity to share with at least one the life-changing decision they made when they repented and believed and became followers of Christ. God, help us to do it with boldness. And then God, with the Holy Spirit of God, use these folks to bring a great harvest in this Bund community. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.